we always look at who died and we should, but we talk less about the folks who survive shootings that are non-fatal, right? Like spinal cord injuries and things like that. We talk less about what it means to bear witness to that, what it means to be a caregiver for that person that now um, cannot move or cannot speak and things like that, cannot work, cannot parent. And I think that's something that we're not reckoning with when we think about police violence and we think about police harms. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the O&B Institute. My name is Mark Abizade, the host of the show, and I'm here with Irfan Muradi, one of our summer research fellows who will be co-hosting this episode. In this episode, we hear from Erin Carrison, Assistant Professor of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley, to discuss her thoughts on transforming social structures and imagining futures beyond police following the murder of George Floyd. Professor Carrison's work investigates the impact of structural disadvantage, concentrated poverty, and state supervision on health outcomes of individuals and communities marked by criminal justice intervention. Here was our conversation. So anyways, Erin, first of all, thank you so much for being on our show. And uh, I actually want to start off by telling like a really quick story from when we first met or the first time I saw you speak, you were given a presentation about three years ago on um, a prison-based drug treatment program. And towards the end of the talk, someone asked you something like, so like, what do you, like, what would you tell the prison people to like fix the program or something? Or like, what what should we do to reform it? And then you said, this is what really left an impression on me. You said, I'm, I'm quoting you here. You said, it's really difficult as someone who's an abolitionist to have meaningful, productive conversations with folks who are committed to reform. I don't want to fix it. I don't want to fix it. And you repeated that like six times. Yeah, it sounds like me. You said, yep. And then you said, I don't want people, I want people to think about why they are wedded to this mechanism to begin with. And it, like I said, it left an impression. And uh, just like reflecting on the last few weeks, it seems like there's millions of other people who have kind of like gotten there because we've seen the conversation shift from talking about reform to defunding police to dismantling police. So we're going in that direction. And so I'm wondering like what your thoughts have been over the last few weeks um, in seeing the rapid shift in this discourses since the murder of George Floyd. Thank you for that question. Thank you for the reminder. I'm so happy to learn that I'm still on brand um, and I won't likely shift from that posture. Um, In fact, if I do, it means we got our work done. So I I hope I can stop saying that. But until then, that that will be my my heartbeat and um, battle cry. But uh, yeah, I've thought a lot too about these last few weeks, um, you know, there's a lot of things happening. For one, this this isn't a new discussion. This isn't a new struggle. This isn't a new plea, you know, people and, and Black folk in particular, but the most marginalized among us, you know, poor, unhoused, disabled, queer, trans, um, have really been living under the heels of police. And when I say police, I mean the institution. I'm not singling out um, individual police officers, though I'm sure we'll get into a bad apple conversation at some point this afternoon. But I'm talking about the structure. And and honestly, it's it's a metaphor, but it is true, right? George Floyd was, was beneath the knee of a police officer. Um, so we've been barely surviving. Um, And I really think it's a testament to just sort of how remarkable Black people are as a diaspora. 
Um, and so that's not new, right? We've always, always been clinging for claims to our lives and that of our children's and that of our families and that of our futures. What we're seeing now is beautiful, right? I mean, folks, folks are calling to arms around the world. You know, you see these statues being toppled and all these sorts of things. But what I also think is happening is that beyond Black folk who have always, always been vulnerable to and, and subject to police surveillance and police violence, is that other people are fed up with structures. So what I'm talking about specifically is, is this particular moment, you know, social, economic, historical flashpoint where we've got COVID, right? People are sick. People are dying and thousands by the day. Millions of people are unemployed. Even when we sort of turn the light switch back on to let up our social distancing and sheltering in place mandates, those jobs won't necessarily be waiting for folks. In fact, I think many of them will be gone, you know, as we move towards automation. Um, Folks are scared to death about what's going to happen in November, you know, with the presidential election. Um, and so there's just, there's a lot of precarity and there's, there's a lot of, I have no idea what's coming down the pike, but what I see and smell now is rotten. So I, I think what we see with this swell, um, this social movement, if you will, around police violence anchored in um, a desire to upend anti-Blackness is, is really a, a confluence of sort of stresses and a lack of tolerance from folks who just don't, they're not satisfied with the systems that are built to serve them, ideally, um, but in fact wreak havoc on their lives. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. This is nothing new. The swelling numbers, the legions, if you will, um, I think they've emerged in large part because this is a moment where folks are tired. Folks are scared and they're tired and they, they just want things to be different. We know that police haven't existed forever. We've had lives and worlds and histories beyond them. And police have its roots in particular histories of capitalist and colonial development, for example, in in Imperial England, in colonized India and the Philippines, and in the transatlantic slave trade. And in a recent article, you explain that in the American context, policing originated during slavery and in early industrialization in order to protect, and I quote, uh, the interest of capitalists, industrialists, landowners, and the elites. Can you tell us a little bit about these histories and speak to the importance of historicizing policing as an idea? Yeah. So first I'll say it's a Western idea, right? So it, it's for in the U.S., I mean, the American project is a raced one, to be clear. It's definitely one built on the backs of enslaved Black folk um, and indigenous genocide. That's that's just indisputable. Um, but we've seen mechanisms and structures of state-sanctioned social control and violence all over sort of the Western frontier, if you will. You know, you, you talked about industrialized England. You can go further back, you know, the divine right of kings and fiefdoms and, and ways to sort of control serfs that either didn't align um, with 
Christian ideals and and sort of property ownership and that kind of thing. Um, and yes, you see it in other places around the world and in the U.S., you see it as police. So that's sort of like one of the newer uh, manifestations of this. But this is this is a very Western enterprise is to have some sort of centralized unit decide what our collective ideals are for what is a productive person or who is a member of our community um, whose worth, whose life, excuse me, is worth protecting. Um, that is not new. It just simply morphs and shifts. And in the U.S. specifically, police has a, a regional role or a regional um embodiment. So in the South, of course, you know, following Reconstruction, we had Chang gangs. You know, the 13th Amendment said you wouldn't be a slave anymore, no more involuntary servitude um, unless you had committed a crime for which you were convicted. You know, so we find other ways to police free Black people in the South at the turn of the 19th century. Indian constables, you know, the we're sitting now, or I am anyways, I'm assuming you're somewhere near me in California, um, this is stolen land. I, I, what I call Richmond, California, is is Chinolone land, and it's unseated, you know. And so Indian constables really just pushed, like, and killed on the way there, um, but just pummeled through all these indigenous groups way out to the Pacific Ocean and beyond that. Right? We're looking at Hawaii. Um, so that's that's one sort of geographical locale, and and also as industry you know, steam and water and locomotives and all that came to the Midwest and the North, we saw police officers working as union busters, you know, and and sort of disrupting, equalizing efforts among laborers in factories and and in slums, quote unquote, ghettos, um, in places like New York and Boston and Philadelphia and Chicago. Um, So policing was and still is a very localized enterprise. Um, and that's always been the case because if police exist as as an arm of the state to control groups that again are, are maligned with sort of the middle class ideals and and those might be white Christian cishet male property owning you know all the kinds of things that I think are still robust today as far as what the American dream looks like um, then policing will take whatever shape it must to control people that don't align with that, that don't aspire to that or don't have the capacity, of course, by by no fault of their own, um, to realize that kind of life for themselves. So it's a a very local practice. Um, So even when folks say, oh, but police look so different here and here and here, I say, well, but what's the anchor? I promise you it's about controlling people who don't fit. Um, And it's completely constructed and arbitrary what it is to fit and who does, but it's, it's no less real in its implications. So Aaron, with that description of the role of police in society, what is your reaction to some of the changes we've been seeing across the country, including this week uh, at the federal level when the House passed the police reform bill, which is called George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And one of the things that bill does is ban chokeholds, removes qualified immunity for police officers, and expands the use of body cameras for police officers? Uh, I'm not really into it. It's <laughs> the short version. It, it was passed unanimously by the Democrats. That doesn't Every surprise Democrat. me. And that's another yeah. podcast. Like, what are the Dems doing? But yeah, so here's the story. We've had these sorts of accountability, 
measures in place. You know, again, policing is local. Um, so use of force policies and protocols around deploying it, um, like sort of moving through the chain of tools available to you, right? You use your voice, we can do hand restraints, baton, taser, spray, you know, up and up and up and up. I don't know if I got that order correct, but basically there's there's a toolkit, literally either on your vest or on your belt that an officer has at their disposal. And you're supposed to move from less intrusive to more intrusive. The, the most intrusive would be, of course, um, your firearm if you brandished it. So this idea of like no more chokeholds, we've always said, please don't chokehold civilians. You know, that's always been on paper. Um, and yet police have resorted to that particular means of restraint um, far sooner than they should, given sort of the protocol of moving through the things on your belt or on your vest. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm not really excited to see this sort of ban because I'm like, well, didn't we have that anyways? You know, these, these sorts of efforts um, to keep police accountable via saying no more chokeholds no more qualified immunity, let's use body cameras. You're not supposed to use chokeholds anyway, and you never were. Qualified immunity, of course, like we we need to work through what it means to hold um, police misconduct accountable, or, or folks who engage in it rather, accountable to the to the community that they serve. Um, but that that doesn't mean that the policies themselves will be rewritten. Right. So you can say you no longer have qualified immunity. You know, you're going to be called into criminal court like any other assailant would. But if they're still these are officers and I'm talking specifically about patrol officers, if they're still operating and executing their charge within the guidelines that are set forth, then they're still not doing anything wrong. Right. So we got to We got to start earlier with what what is, in fact, legal, what is, in fact, appropriate. Um, and until that's rewritten, qualified immunity is just not going to buy you very much. Um, and and for the idea of expanding the use of body cameras, that's that's just not the look. We we've already had so much data, right? <laughs> People have body cams. Sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they don't get turned on. Things are manipulated, you know. But even even on the best day, you know, an officer who's on their best behavior and doing everything to a T sort of having footage, again, of this kind of harm and violence that folks are rallying around in outcry, um, if, it's, if it's not illegal, it's not illegal. So, so it's not so much uh, do we need to see police in action so much as what do we, what do we want to collectively decide is appropriate and, and, you know, as far as how they act. And also with body cams specifically, We've always had footage. We've always had evidence. We've had dash cameras, uh, dashboard cameras on patrol cars. We've had CCTV, closed circuit television, um, video recordings, you know, in, in public transit stations or retail spaces, things like that. And before that, you know, we had helicopters. I, I remember very, very clearly watching Rodney King get up, get down, get up, get pushed down, you know, and, and we have effigies from lynch mobs. You know, there are people who have little scraps of leather that they fashion purses out of and stuff. Well, that leather is, is black skin. You know, we have always, always had the data. So I don't know that more data is going to do it. And, and I also know there's a secondary traumatization um, that comes with these kinds of media that are circulating constantly. Folks don't want to see their people 
being killed. Like fetishizing that um, is demoralizing. And, and also it mobilizes and excites people who do want to see Black violence, or I'm sorry, violence enacted upon Black folks. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the expansion of body cameras, and I, and I don't think qualified immunity or banning chokeholds um, is the look if we don't start sooner and earlier interrogating what is in fact legal. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. The data has always been there, and we've had all of these different ways of recording it, but it seems to me that no, these reforms aren't, aren't sufficient in... Um, addressing racist police violence. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that study you did, you co-authored in 2018 in the wake of the murder of Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And you and your co-authors spoke to Baltimore residents and found that, you know, they're highly skeptical and, uh, of course, re- reasonably slow that body cameras would stop police violence. But I remember that at least one respondent um, spoke about the, the repeated traumas associated with seeing the videos of deaths at the hands of police on the internet. Can you tell us a little bit about the effect of these dual traumas, you know, the, violent, the daily violence of police and the secondary violence of circulation and consumption and its effects on the psyches of populations targeted by the police? Yeah, um, so sort of in an abstract way you can imagine like it's super upsetting to see people that look like you that look like your family members um being slain in the street and that's not hyperbole you know folks are are being gunned down from behind for sleeping at a wendy's it's unacceptable but no less real and true and common um but also as i said you know policing practices are local and so the folks that they subject to these kinds of violence um, violent acts, they are our community members. They are our children. They are our neighbors. You know, we play pickup ball with them. We go to church with them. So there's the abstraction that other spectators, you know, might hold while they're watching this is, is not at all the experience of, of folks in Baltimore. I spoke to people who were like, I know Freddie Gray you know, this person, he dated this person or that, you know, so it really, it hits home. And so to see it constantly, especially when you see black bodies flailing, slain on the ground is horrific. And, you know, so even if you wanted, if you wanted to dismiss that, that Freddie Gray is a person that belonged to a community, I still invite people to understand sort of what the, what the physical and psychological traumas are that are tied to the kind of circulation of this medium being exposed to it. And that includes all the usual suspects of anxiety and fear and depression, you know, um, but also we, we carry it in our bodies. You know, we literally, it's, it's in our DNA and our blueprint. Once we are traumatized, that is not undone, right? It's passed down intergenerationally. I can never say that word. Um, <laughs> epigenetically, you know, our, our colleague, Amani Allen in the School of Public Health writes about this extensively, about how violence, how stress and how dim- discrimination is literally aging us. It's literally aging us. She talks about the telomeres and how that is an irreparable damage, you know, and then that's also transferred in utero. This is profound. So it's not just like, oh, that's smarts and that made me sad. There is a legacy of trauma that is passed down among and within Black families and communities 
that cannot be undone, right? All that we can do now is move forward and say, like, we don't want any more of this imagery. We don't want any more of these killings and this and that. But we can't even undo. Like, what I carry now, it can't be erased. It can't be erased. Um, And I think that's something that we're not reckoning with when we think about police violence and we think about police harms. We always look at who died, and we should, right? No, No one's life should be traded for the authority of the state, like not not by any stretch of the imagination. But we talk less about the folks who survive shootings that are non-fatal, right? Like spinal cord injuries and things like that. Um, we talk less about what it means to bear witness to that, what it means to be a caregiver for that person, you know, that, that now um, cannot move or cannot speak and things like that cannot work, cannot parent. We don't talk about that, and that's a that's a different kind of harm that can't be addressed with the toolkits that we're using now to measure it. To turn to this question of bodies and communities, we're hearing this phrase coming uh, more and more frequently: "Strong communities make police obsolete." How does that statement sit and resonate with you? Um, So when I call myself a carceral abolitionist, what I'm talking about um, are efforts and and really commitments to completely ending carceral logics. And by that, I mean logics that animate all the practices we have that punish people, particularly for their life circumstances that can be so easily traced to structural divestment and structural violence. Um, to upending systems and practices that are animated by logics of who's foreign, who is other, who is unworthy, right? Um, And also by changing narratives that we ourselves within our communities, privileged or otherwise, hold around who deserves to be let in, around who deserves to be fed or held or respected or even seen. So, So abolitionist logic are not at all about anarchy. You know, people say, what are you going to do with the rapists and the murderers? I'm like, well, I got news for you. (laughs) Right now we have serious backlogs and really low clearance rates. So if that's what you're most concerned about, this already isn't the look and hasn't been for any any stretch of time um, that you can draw. But also um, it's about making sure that we don't have the market conditions that give rise to a need for police or even a justification for it. Cause I still don't think we need it now, but for all the naysayers, right? If I had to play devil's advocate, I would say, listen, what if we didn't have crime? That's just not so crazy. And I don't mean, does that mean we'll, we'll never have harm? You know, we'll never have hurt or trouble or challenges or conflict. Fine. But crime is constructed, right? What, it, what is deemed illegal is not necessarily harmful. And there's a whole lot of stuff that wreaks havoc in people's lives that is not illegal, that is not criminal. So, so that sort of construction, that needs to be thrown out immediately anyway. So that when I say there's a possibility that we don't have to have crime, it's so true. It's so true because it's a construct. And if we didn't have crime as such because you know communities were stronger, um, then yeah, we wouldn't need police because police respond to crime, which is in large part a symptom of much much bigger and deeper social and structural ills. Um, So when I say I'm a carceral abolitionist, I want to get rid of these structures and I want to get rid of the paradigms that undergird them because they are built 
on oppression. They're built on coercion. They're built on violence and they're built on distancing and othering. Um, and none of that, none of that could ever make for safety. So for me, it's a no brainer. And as we hear this question of defunding the police come to the, come to the surface, it seems to me that maybe the question misses some of these larger carceral frameworks that we see spring up in, you know, in surveillance and in prisons and so on. And it seems like sometimes even our radical strategies might struggle to escape carceral frameworks. And for example, we see this in in the Den in Denver, where schools have, yes, agreed to cut ties with police departments and continue uh, and, and seize funding for them but choose to retain armed security guards, which to me sound like police in another name. And so I'm wondering, what are the barriers to these larger structural transformations? And how do you see communities coming together to organize and provide care for themselves in ways that the police cannot? Sure. Well, I first want to address that example. Thank you, Erfan, for offering that, for lifting up what's going on in Colorado. Um, Arguably... Relying on armed security as opposed to sworn police officers, that sounds very dangerous to me um, because private systems, however flawed, you know, local policing is, um, once you get into a private arena, all the checks and balances, you know, and sort of accountability structures that are in place, you know, RE, George Floyd, um, Justice and Policing Act, that goes out the window. So I don't want a cop in a school. I definitely don't want a black ops veteran, you know, or whoever's joining those sorts of firms um, in classrooms with my babies. So that for one is, is not the solve. But also another issue when we're, when we're talking about alternatives to policing, another issue that we have to navigate is, is whether we're just replacing police with something else that's just as violent um, and, and possibly more sinister. So this is a question that's been posed to me um, pretty frequently in the last few weeks as a, as a member of the School of Social Welfare at Cal, which is, what if we had social workers instead of police? And I understand the spirit of that, that social workers are members of a profession um, you know, that espouse empathic listening and identifying sort of the root causes of problems. And, and being really oriented towards problem solving. And I think the spirit of those things are wonderful, but social work also has a legacy to reckon with, you know, and tracking a, a big, big part of social work is case management. And so there's, there's two words I want to pull out of that phrase, cases, right? So there's an abstraction there. Um, as opposed to people are are being logged their lives that of that of their loved ones and the people who they work with you know biometric data for instance like your analyses and things like that are all included in that case so we 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 break people down um, to their actions many of which are so constrained and so contrived <laughs> depending on who's looking at them so that's really problematic and then the management comes right back to that. What are we going to do with this problem population? Whatever that is, if it's someone who's constructed as abusing drugs, if it's someone who is unhoused, you know, or in hospice and has no one to take care of them, things like that. These are all people that are on the fringes who we don't know what to do with. 
you know, so we manage them. And with that management comes that abstraction and that sort of bureaucratic administrative approach to addressing human suffering. And so that's, that's a whole nother issue that people have to keep in the foreground of their mind when they're thinking about alternatives to police. Don't bring in another group of folks who have wreaked havoc in the lives of indigenous community, black community, undocumented community, disabled community, unemployed community. I mean, you just name it. These are people who have come under siege within within that profession as well. Um, so when we're when we're talking about who can, how do we shift resources and who to, I would not shift them to anybody who is not impacted by the systems from which we are shifting the resources, right? So if if this is not your truth, right, if you haven't walked this life, and I'm not saying you can't be an ally and an advocate, but if you haven't walked this walk, you should not be the first to the mic to say where resources should be redistributed, right? And so I'm, I'm very, very leery of that too, that as, as we've seen this huge groundswell of, of support um, and coalition building around anti-Black racism in the U.S. and, and globally, frankly, um, I'm listening most closely to the people who are actually impacted by those schema, to the people who are actually surviving it, and, and to those who are close to our community members who didn't, who weren't so lucky. Um, so I'm, I don't want to hear anything <laughs> about alternative, um, you know, alternatives to policing if, if it isn't authored or at least, at least drafted in collaboration with people who, who actually know this world. Because as I said, they carried in and on their bodies. So in those conversations that you've been listening to from those people who are impacted, what are some of the things that they envision as alternatives, both to policing and to the institution of uh, social work? I've heard proposals um, for deploying social workers instead of police officers. So for instance, if there's a 911 dispatch call to send um, a police officer to a site where someone's in, you know, psychiatric distress, you know, they're nonverbal, um, maybe perhaps navigating an episode, something like that. Instead of sending a police officer who doesn't have the toolkit to navigate that kind of crisis, send a social worker instead. And I want to be very clear about two things. The first is that there are plenty of social workers who are also impacted by the systems that we're working to upend, right? That's why many come to that work. Um, so I, I, I don't want to say that these groups are mutually exclusive. Um, and the second thing, I, I want to give big ups to social workers who put their bodies in between police officers and their clients or folks who aren't even their clients. You know, they literally stand between the barrel of a gun and the person who might be met by that, by that bullet. Um, so they're out there. They're out there in very real ways. Um, but the notion that that is the answer, it does not mean that there's no more police incident you know, and, and a report filed and more tracking for this person who may or may not wind up in county jail, which right now with COVID is a death sentence, if you've been following that. Um, it doesn't mean that that person won't still have to comply with a number of sort of county or state mandates that that demonstrate their performance of healing or, you know, trying to get back to some semblance of what it is to be civil, which again is completely out of a lot of people's control 
given the structural environments in which they live and try to survive. So we still, I get that. I get that. Don't send a cop to someone who's in the middle of a psychiatric crisis. Um, But a social worker isn't necessarily the answer either. We have to start sooner and we got to start further back. Why is this person out in the street experiencing this? Why is this their Tuesday? Because I promise you it is and they'll be back the next day. You know, what, what are the root causes and how do we address them? Not just identify them, you know, so that they are accounted for in our, in our solution sort of game plan in our case management, but let's get rid of the root cause altogether. So the proposals that I'm seeing, they don't do that. They don't do that. Maybe in future iterations they will, but we really don't have time for folks to figure it out. This is not trial and error. And this is another reason why I say you need to be listening to people who have been saying this all along. One thing in one of the previous statements you made about, you know, there, there could be something worse than than police. It reminded me of a, a question that was posed by Boots Riley, you know, the, the, the guy from the coup. Yeah, yeah you know, he's Bo- so much fun. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> And uh, what he said is, is he asked really earnestly on Twitter, he asked for people who want to dismantle the police, I'm on board, but hold on. If we dismantle the police and we understand the police as an institution that's there to serve the business interests, the elite, the wealthy, uh, if we get rid of the police, won't they just shift to start hiring like mercenaries, like private armies and militia and like, isn't that what I said? Some black ops exactly. veteran. So yeah. you're it's right in line with that. But his idea is like, we got to get rid of capitalism and the police together. Like we, we, the whole system needs to be just upended like at once. It's like, you know, it's like you try to like piecemeal it and then you're going to end up maybe worse off than you were originally. I'm into it. I'm I'm into Boots Riley on on like a whole lot of levels and for a lot of reasons. So I'm like, yeah, no, that sounds like gospel. I'm into it. Um, but yeah, because like I said, this is these are structures, you know, these and all its machinations that exist in the interests of the powerful. That's it. It's it's as complicated and as simple as that. So yes, I'm not interested in any sort of game of whack-a-mole where we get rid of police and then some other sort of structure um, or an iteration of those structures pops up, you know, and, and it might be more sinister and might be more dangerous because for whatever we have to say about policing, um, there is some oversight. There's some oversight, you know, um, or I should say this. People are bearing witness. You know, I am. I am much more concerned um, about the execution of public safety. If you can see my air quotes, um, that are you know conducted by folks who have no skin in the game with respect to community or even how they're perceived by the community. You know, even even the worst mayor was elected and has an interest in being reelected. You know. Um, if we move things to the private sector, we're in trouble. And and all of that, it just fuels the engine of capitalist regimes. You know, the safest people will be the ones who can pay the most for safety. What is that? That that can't be. That just can't be where we're headed. Um, so that's that's another thing for us to look out for with these alternatives. You know, if we privatize public safety, then it then it's up for the highest bidder. And who is the highest bidder? The person with the most to quote unquote lose at the hands of the unruly. Um, so the haves and have nots, th- those 
lines will just become darker and the gulf between those two groups will be deeper and wider. Um, just scrap it all. Just just scrap it all. It's it's basura. Like we just we just need to do it. And you know, the the issue is not that's so impossible. Cause you know what? Wilder things have happened and wilder things will happen still. It's about having an imagination. And and I think that's in large part what keeps us so constrained. Um is the fear that's stoked for sure. You know, fear, people think fear is an agitator. And I understand that on some level, you know, fear keeps us sort of at this DEFCON one level, but it's also a pacifier because if you are afraid for yourself, for your future to go outside, you name it, you become a lot more complacent with respect to, to critical inquiry. You know, you, you are less likely because the risks are too high. So to entertain something different without understanding what that would mean or, or what, where that would land you and your people, because let's face it, we're not as altruistic as we might say. Um, that's enough. That's enough to keep you in place and in line with the structures that be as they are. So fear, fear is at the base of all of this. Um, I, I believe, and and sort of our unwillingness to confront the limits of our realities and confront our unwillingness to critically engage what might be possible instead. It's, it's also true when you talk when you when you think about surveillance too. It's like when you go outside and you know you're constantly on camera. That also changes your behavior, and not even yes. when you go outside, but even like when you're using a computer because you know the corporations are monitoring you what yes. you click or you're browsing you're right though you know we're we're always looking over our shoulders um and because there's so much insecurity again tied to capitalism um people they really do they have to fight for what's theirs and and what i invite people to think about is like what could be ours <laughs> my safety my health and my joy is wrapped up in yours that's it. Like that, that's none of us are getting out of this alive. Um, and our fear has us so nearsighted around that. You know, we, we just can't see beyond our next meal, our next day. And, and we don't recognize collectively that that's exactly what's meant to be, (laughs) that that's on purpose, that vulnerability, that precarious. That's what I mean about being a pacifier because it keeps you in line because all you want to do is make sure that you and yours eat the next day. What would be a better use of our time? What would be a better way to devote our energy instead of into panic would be about collective health, collective safety, and collective joy. And if we were to devote our attentions to that work and to that kind of liberation, we would not need structures of control. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guest, Aaron Karrison, an assistant professor of social welfare at UC Berkeley for coming on our show. For links to some of Professor Karrison's work on the topics we discussed, visit us online at belonging.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. There you can also find a transcript of this interview. This has been Mark Abizade. And this is Irfan Marathi. Thank you for listening.